What's up, everybody? My name is Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition, and you're tuned into Kinda Neat. Thank you guys again for tuning in on this momentous occasion. We have done it. We have hit 52 episodes. That means we have been doing one per week for a year, which is crazy. I'm uh, very excited. First and foremost, hold on. At It's Intuition on Twitter, my man, behind the boards, making the shit sound buttery, Ben Shim, at I Am Database, based with two S's. After 52 episodes, I'm sure you guys know this shit as well as I know it. You could probably recite it word for word on the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash kind of neat where you should go because the page is so boring. Make something exciting happen on it. Twitter.com at that's kind of neat where we're well on our way to a thousand followers and we appreciate every one of you so much. (sighs) A year, a year. I don't know. When we started this, it was just this kind of, um, it was just an idea to keep doing something that I really missed doing, which was podcasts because I hadn't done it in all of 2012 and I missed it a lot. I really enjoy talking to people and I like curating a YouTube channel. It's a lot of fun. I like getting to hear what my friends and peers and people that I'm fans of are working on. And and that's what we've gotten to do. And, um, it's been spectacular so far. And, and the response that I get from you guys, you know, every time I get a tweet that says, Oh, you guys are my favorite podcast or like, it's part of my routine on Wednesdays. Like, thank you so much. We really appreciate that because it's become a part of our routine and, you know, much praise, so much praise uh, and due diligence to my man, Ben for coming in and dealing with my shit all the time. He works so hard to do this shit and he really bends over backwards on a whim and he's on call all the time in case like somebody is just in town for a fucking oh we can get him for two hours like can you come right now and it's like you know he does that shit and he always makes sure that the stuff is here on time without him none of this would exist and i'm so thankful that he's been willing to help me with this and i know that it's going to pay off also the other person who i don't mention on the podcast that i should who has dedicated so much time and donated so much time to helping with the videos is uh, Kyle Gray, who is one of the guests on the show. He goes by Avocado. You guys might know him. You should follow him. He's funny on Twitter. He's a weirdo, and he's one of my best friends. And every you know Monday or Tuesday night before the video comes out on Wednesday, I go over to his house. And we sit and shoot the shit for two hours while the video's processing. Uh, and it's always one of my, it's one of my routines of the week and I appreciate it. And, um, I'm so thankful that he's been willing to help out as well. And, you know, I'm just very excited that we made it to 52 weeks without missing a week. And, you know, we almost did miss this week because just due to some crazy circumstances, usually we try to record a couple weeks in advance and I try to stack up episodes so that we have some just in case we can't get to one that week. We have some in in the background ready to go. But I had three artists say that they could do it this week and then not unfortunate events, not making them not able to make it to this. So, you know, I was panicking because the next week tonight is Sunday that I'm recording this. And and next week the studio is locked out. Like somebody has booked the studio for the whole week. So we wouldn't be able to use it at all. And then the week after that I'm traveling for work. And so I'm going, fuck the next two weeks are fucked. And I don't have anybody for Wednesday and anybody for the Wednesday after that. And so thankfully we were able to get our guest today, George Watsky, to come onto the show. I've been talking to him for a while about it. Like, Hey man, we should talk. We haven't sat down and talked to each other like this since, since 2011, when we did the first one, you know, George is a fucking busy dude. He's always out on the road and, um, he's touring a bunch and he's 
so dedicated to his craft. He invests all of his money back into himself, and uh, it's very inspiring to watch because he's built such a dedicated fan base. But the dude's busy, so like we don't get to hang out like we should. We all we're always texting like on some hey you know we should kick it and grab a beer sometimes, and then never it never happens because we're just both always somewhere else or whatever. When I told him what was happening and how I couldn't find a guest, he was like so polite to fucking come and help out. So he's a great one year anniversary guest because not only is does he have a huge dedicated fan base that hopefully will enjoy some of the stories that we talk about today when they check it out but also it's kind of come full circle like the last couple of weeks we've been revisiting guests that we did um when we were when we were on the other show last week we had on nobody and nobody was one of the first three or four episodes of knock city live that we did and before that we had raquel who was the second episode and george i was i tell him during the podcast like he was one of the he was one of the momentous occasions at at knock city live because it was he was just stormed onto the scene at that point with the pale kid raps fast having him on really was like a buzzworthy thing for us. And, and, um, you know, so I'm, I'm just grateful for the effect that George has had. Uh, and I get a lot of trickle down fans from his fans who find out about me because of him. And so much praise to George for coming in and doing this on last minute. You know, with that being said, seriously, thank you guys for tuning in every week. I know I'm, I've been doing like the embarrassing stories thing, but I just wanted to take this time to really, you know, show my appreciation for all of you guys that tune in. It means a lot. And when I see you in person and you tell me that you listen, it means a lot. And I'm so thankful that the YouTube channel is doing so well and that you guys are enjoying it. And please, this year, let's make it twice as big as it are as it has been. But also, let's get you guys activating and interacting more and tell me like who you guys want to see on the show leave comments saying like i liked this performance or i didn't or you know tell me your suggestions like i want to hear them how can we make the show better for you guys that have been loyal listeners so thank you so much and without further ado here is our year anniversary episode with my man george watsky So you want to get the elephant out of the room first? Because I have the big question that I want to ask. Yeah, okay. So, And I want to state, the only reason I would even bring it up is because like it was so crazy that my mom texted me about it. Wow. Like, did you see your friend George? What did, you, what did she see it on? She's in Alaska. Did she see it on CNN? I think CNN, yeah. Yeah, they played it really early on CNN. From what I hear, they like cut to their commercial break with I didn't I didn't watch it I kind of shuttered myself off from all the stuff that was going on while it was like in the crazy storm of it but yeah. from what I hear they kicked a commercial break with two like middle-aged mom aged women just tisk tisking like yeah. look at what the youth of the nation has come to right I guess I really haven't talked about it since then in like an interview because I didn't want to seem like I was trying to gain publicity off of right. a negative thing. So Absolutely. that's the reason that I haven't really talked about it. And and also cause I was affected by it. I mean, it was some crazy shit. I mean, it was, it became a, a bigger deal than anything really that's happened since the fast route video, which is kind of unfortunate. Yeah. But. I thought that was kind of crazy knowing you and watching from the outside perspective. I thought it was, um, I thought you handled it very well and in a classy and respectful manner by, you know, mentioning it immediately and then like letting it be. And I feel like you kind of ducked out from social media for a little while afterwards. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to involve myself in like the Facebook war over things, partly because I was trying to figure out how I felt about everything. I mean, I didn't have when, when the people on Facebook who were there trashing me, like I didn't really have a response to be like, no, fuck you. Because I felt Shitty. I felt shitty. Like, I felt like they had valid points like that, you know, yeah, what I did was really stupid. You know, I don't need to be the one saying all that stuff because first of all, 
almost to a fault, my fans defended me immediately in ways that, if anything, I would have been on the side of the people who were mad at me right. because I didn't feel like I don't feel like when you do something stupid, you should immediately be given a pass to say, you know, oh, whatever. Like, of course, people assume my best interest and I appreciate that people think that I have a good character that I would act in that way. But I felt really stupid. It was embarrassing. It was. Uh, but at the same time. I wanted to give it time because you're never going to be acting in your right mind right after something really traumatic and emotional happens. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I feel like I know that feeling that you were going through when you woke up the next day of just like anxiety and like a f- sick feeling in your stomach probably. I mean, I, I thought my career might be over and – It's like the love of your life breaking you, uh, breaking up with you or something probably is a, a similar feeling. Yes and no in some ways, but also feeling like the love of your life breaks up with you and it's because you did something that you could have easily chosen not to do. Right. Something so stupid that's like, oh, Jesus Christ, because I don't know what had been happening was my shows were getting wilder and wilder. Like I was taking bigger and bigger physical risks and I was getting away with them. And like when it works, I mean, you watch videos of Eddie Vedder swinging from the rafters and nailing it and people's response isn't what an asshole it's look at this fucking legend yeah yeah but of course the the moral is i'm not eddie vetter i like i I didn't do it successfully you know i and i don't claim to be pretend to be or think i am and clearly i was shown in a very real way that i'm not but at the same time i like you know i jumped off this roof in madison and got caught by the crowd and then you know, I jumped out of the balcony at the Fillmore show, which was this like euphoric, awesome moment. And everybody, it was their favorite moment of the concert and stuff. And like, it went to my head a little bit and I kind of stopped thinking that there were boundaries to what I could do. I started thinking I could get away with anything. And then plus I you, mean, you only weigh like a buck and a quarter. If I, <laughs> if I would have done that, somebody would have died because I'm a fat boy. I don't know. Don't you hit critical velocity and then like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, true. I don't know. No, I don't think that's really true. <laughs> I, I don't think you had enough time to catch critical velocity. I think I learned that my, my knowledge of aerodynamic flight is very, very low and I don't know. Anyway, it was dumb as fuck. I I felt really bad, you know, just empathetic about it. Like on some, the media picked it up in a very unfair way. And like even the CNN shit. Yeah. The tisk tisk. It was like, Oh, white rapper, George Watsky. And like kind of on some, like, who does this guy think he is type of shit. And that's the funny thing about traditional media is like, they don't understand. Um, when somebody like that wasn't your first show, you know, it's not like you just came out of the fucking And and I don't have a record of doing this. It's not like I'm that wild guy, but the important thing for me at that time to also keep reminding myself was, yes, the media reports were super sensationalized and, you know, British tabloid stuff. I mean, like they clearly did it in a way that was meant to spin it in their direction. Yeah. However, and this is the big thing is I actually did hurt people and I'm not the victim in this scenario. Like there's people whose lives were affected by it and I'm not in touch with the girl, so I don't know how she's progressed. The guy whose back was hurt, I have been in touch with, but you know, my understanding is it's not going to be a life-changing thing. But I also know that it has affected both their lives, mm. and they were, you know, this has been very unpleasant for them, and it's been physically shitty. And that's the most important thing, you know. People got hurt, and it's not about like 
you know, I, I can't allow myself to feel victimized by the media because that takes away from the reality of what happened, which right. is I made a decision that affected people negatively right. that I shouldn't have done. And that's, that's what matters. But you know, the next thing is, is that worth me stopping doing what I love to do? Right. And to me, the answer is no. Right. I still believe in what I do. I think that I made an isolated dumbass decision well, isolated in the scale of its dumbassness, I've been doing other stuff like that, but it taught me the lesson that, you know, there are boundaries and you really, when you're doing shows, you need to, if you're going to take risks, take risks that affect yourself and don't affect your audience. So, you know, there's safer ways to while out at shows. Yeah. So next tour, you're not going to be throwing shit at anybody like G.G. <laughs> Allen or anything? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll probably keep it to just pissing on my bass player. Well, I'm staying home, man. <laughs> I'm staying home. Then. Just wear the no. splash guard, man. You'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, like, I'm going to keep doing this because I love it and I don't think that it should derail my career. But at the same time, if a fan decides that what I did affects their opinion of me, that's that's their choice to make, you know? And, and if and like, I feel like you're the type of person that would understand if they make that choice, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, and, and fuck if, if my career does end because everyone jumps ship and they're like, look, which I don't think is what's going to happen, but you know, say in some world that that is what happens, then I got, I made my bet. I got a lie in it and mm-hmm. I can't tell people to like me or not like me. That's, that's on the crowd's decision. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm going to keep doing what I do. And, and if it starts to feel like, I'm some Chris Brown character who's, you know, fans are apologizing for me in places where I feel like it's, you know, I don't want to become some Justin Bieberish Chris Brown dude where no matter what crazy fucked up shit I do, my fans are going to apologize for it. And then right. I keep on keeping on. That's, that's not the kind of person I am. So, right. You're a very down to earth dude. And it seems like you got a lot of good people around you keeping you level headed. And I'm sure it's never going to get to the point where you're like doing crazy drugs and tattooing your face and beating women or anything like that. I don't, I don't think I'm on that trajectory. Yeah. I mean, we'll see what happens. I, I really don't know if you were, bro. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's a lot of things that would make me cooler, man. <laughs> and like, what did the war tour organizers say to you afterwards? They've been surprisingly supportive. I mean, to a point where it's similar to the fan experience. I was like, shouldn't you feel like this is a bigger deal right now? Cause it feels like a big deal to me at the same time. They were like, a company seen... like that probably has to be on some like no press is bad press type shit. Almost. I don't know if they felt like that, but they felt like the bad press that was coming wasn't directed at them. It was directed at me. Right. And so they didn't care because it didn't make the festival look bad. If anything, part of their brand is that crazy shit happens at the right. work tour. Right. And keeping, you know, rock alive. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that, so Kevin Lyman runs the Warp Tour, and he was nothing but supportive, and I think that he realized that I'd made a dumb decision and a dumb choice, mm-hmm. but he's also seen it all, man. I mean, like, yeah, he's seen so much stuff happen. I mean, I think people have died at Warp Tour in the past. It's been going on for many years, and... You know, it's a punk rock festival, and that's not to say that that means that performers should be making decisions that puts the audience at risk. But, but at it, the same time, they're able to, like, you know, take an apology and run with it. He was like, this isn't even mistake. in my top 20, like, craziest things that have happened. Yeah, yeah. So he had he had logistical considerations to worry about, and he he acknowledged it. I mean, I, I like, saw him while I was on the stretcher, and he was like, you're not going to do that again, are you? And I was like, no, I'm so sorry. And he said, all right, thanks. And that was, to him in his mind, that was putting it to bed yeah that was cool 
So I'm going to keep on moving, but I'm also going to keep on moving with the understanding that this was a thing that happened and I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to continue to acknowledge it. If anyone talks to me on my Facebook page about it, I'm not going to delete their comments. I'm not going to, you know, I'll respond and hopefully in a way that doesn't seem defensive or um, like I'm in denial. I mean, I'm not going to try and sweep this under the rug. I'm going to hit it head on. And, you know, if it ends up affecting my career down the line, then I can't be mad at anybody but myself. So we'll see. I mean, on a totally personal, like I said, I think you've handled it with class and I think you've been apologetic about it. And I think people are going to respond positively to that. And I think that you're very empathetic to the plight of the people whose lives you've affected. And I'm sure they are grateful for that as well. I'm sure that they understand, you know. With that being said, the last time that that I think we talked, it, like you had just kind of started touring. How's that been going? How's life changed? Yeah, well, I mean, it's crazy because now I feel like there's like so many things have happened. So my first tour was with Dumbfounded in the summer of 2012. I'd been doing college gigging for like four or five years with my spoken word act. So it was a real dream of mine to be able to play clubs. Did and you get bring picked up by uh, an agency? The agency group. Yeah. Tag. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And they've been awesome. In fact, the way I found them was I was looking into similar acts and a lot of the people who everybody that we would be in this considered in the same genre with is, is on there pretty. Yeah. Much. They were either with Molly or, Fitzgerald or, 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 uh, yeah, shout outs to Molly. Yeah. Shout outs to Molly. Shout out. And then, so Peter Schwartz is this guy who ended up taking me on and he's, he's kind of the big boss there. He's the dude. Yeah. Um, he was even becoming more of the dude at that period. I mean, he had, uh, Mac Miller and Wiz Khalifa and Macklemore, but this is before the heist. And then, I mean, he's just, it's crazy how many big acts he's seen the potential in before they've really exploded right the tag agency group is has uh, a really strong curation eye so i went and i just took a subway over there and he didn't know who i was but my manager was friends with them and so he took a risk and another guy who works in his office named jonathan bricks they just believed in it and we routed a tour based on like three shows that i'd had booked i managed to get like a boston show because that's where i went to college a new york show through kevin and I think like one other, I booked this little grimy club in Atlanta who were like one of the only places. So before I got in with the agency group, I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to take a risk, take a leap and see if we can make this club thing happen. And we didn't know if people would show up. So I was just like, I'm ready. I've been doing this college gigging stuff in my rental car alone, like gig after gig after gig for like five years. And I just needed to try this. And so I started just cold emailing venues and being like, I don't have any agent. Like, will you think about booking our band? And I got no love. I mean, I was not responded to by almost anybody except for that club in Atlanta and the guy I knew in Boston. And so at this perfect time, I took this meeting with these guys in New York and I was like, look, I'm just, I'm going to do it. And, and normally the way that they bring an act on is not that they just book a national tour for them they like do test dates and stuff yeah and or like put you on the road as a as a supporting act or something but i was while. like like look this is what i'm gonna do and i would love it if you help me and you know they didn't they just were like all right let's do it and so we took a risk booked the tour they had to work around those three weirdly routed dates that i had and that was summer 2012 it was the nothing like the first time tour went out with dumbfounded in my band and it was really successful. I mean, yeah. it went, went really, we didn't like sell out everywhere, but we sold out a lot of places. 
And it's strange that you mention Atlanta because I feel like you and Jonathan have like some kind of crazy following there that's like started to trickle down to me because I get weird. Really? I get weird show requests in Atlanta and I'm like, who the fuck in it? I've never even been I to Atlanta. I take no responsibility for I'd love to take responsibility for that. If, no, I, I, but, will, uh, I will give you like that's the only addition that I can do that makes sense to me. I'm like, OK, those guys do good in Atlanta. So it must be trickling down to me yeah, because, well, because of YouTube. Shit. So thanks for uh, that. Yeah, um, you're welcome. Because I want to go there and get some soul food. But <laughs> that's awesome. Like how and how big of a crew did you go out with because i feel like you guys do it kind of big you take a full band and shit we take a full band and we've taken similar numbers every time but every time we make a little bit more money and so i can pay the guys a little bit more reasonably i mean they really went out for dirt cheap the first time it's um the band lineup has stayed exactly the same with little alterations here and there but the core guys are pat dimitri my guitarist shout outs to pat shout outs to pat shout outs to pat aka young filigree um chukudi hodge who's our drummer very ripped very ripped very rare very based guy yeah um kush modi who is does a lot of the composition for me a lot of the production work and also plays organ and bass in the group and max miller lauren who's my cousin who if you see him he's the hairy guy looking very serious on stage who plays trumpet synth and now we just bought a sousaphone for him so we're gonna go out with a I don't even know what that is. That it's sounds like, like a Dr. Seuss instrument. It's it's Seussical. It's like a, a wraparound tuba. It's, oh. You see the Roots guy playing yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's like a brass band, kind of low low brass instrument. That's dope. Named after John Philip Sousa, the king of marching band music. Young Wiki. Yeah. Young, young Wikipedia. Young Wiki. I had a song about Wikipedia one time. I'm a, I'm a fucking, I'm a cornucopia facts dude, so. Um, <laughs> I love it. At, Are you good at Jeopardy? Actually, I suck at Jeopardy. Really? I'm really, I, I know selective facts, but. Because I'm good at Jeopardy, and I, I feel like that would be a fun bro date. Yeah, we could watch know. Jeopardy one time. There's the new guy on Jeopardy right now who's like crushing it, it with a unconventional strategy. What's his strategy? He picks the bottom two, like highest number things across all categories. So most people run from lowest top question, to bottom, top to bottom yeah. on a category. He starts at the bottom and then go sweeps across the bottom because mm. he's searching for daily doubles. Mm. He started from the bottom. Now he's here. Now he's here for five weeks straight. Yeah, man. I'm surprised that like, this is the first time I've heard of jeopardy strategies. Cause yeah, usually it's controversial. Goes, everybody goes right down. Yeah. And so he finds, I actually, when I'm watching, get annoyed when people start picking randomly across the board, I'm like, Hey motherfucker, go down the goddamn category. Yeah. People are pissed about yeah, it. And yeah. he's like, my bad blood. Like yeah. I, I do what I do. <laughs> He's, he's, like, he's like scoreboard yeah and trebek's just standing there pronouncing things in french very very accurately that man's been around for a long time they record right across the street from my house and i'm like so sad that i've never seen alex trebek out in public just eating lunch at tender greens or maybe something. that's that's the bro date we go as live studio audience for jeopardy that would be tight that would That'd be, be cool. tight I, and it would make me think of white men can't jump uh, yeah well when, when uh, his wife gets on jeopardy yeah rosie perez yeah yeah Oh, good movie. Amazing movie. All right. We have a whole night planned now. We're going to watch <laughs> White Men Can't Jump, play a game of one-on-one. <laughs> probably invite uh, Wesley Snipes. Who gets to be Billy Hoyle, though? I get, you, you probably have to be Billy Hoyle. Yeah. Let's keep it 100. So anyway, yeah, you go out on the road. and uh, uh, yeah, so it's, what, it's do you learn your, what do you learn your first time? Um, I learned, one, that we could do it. I mean, I was so nervous before we went out. I caught the flu right before the uh, nothing like the first time tour and the night before. I mean, I don't know if I caught it because I was stressed or because it was coincidence or because I was nervous, but I like was throwing up right before we left and right before the first show in Tempe. I was just like, I was, I wanted it so bad. It was my dream that I was worried 
that we wouldn't be able to move tickets and that my the skills that I developed as a spoken word performer wouldn't translate over to hip hop shows. I mean, come on. You had to know. I, I've seen you perform, you know, your little like uh, little industry dates at the at the um, the Viper room, the Viper room and stuff like that. And like, you know, your fucking show translates great, man. Well, thank you. But I think that there were certain things that I learned about, you know, moving the crowd and stuff that I kind of had to learn certain skills that I didn't have before. I mean, some of it did translate over, but anyway, I was so nervous and the fact that it was successful meant so much to me and made me feel like, okay, we can keep this ball rolling. I learned that I just need to relax too. I mean, you can't just stress out and expect that to help things. You know, if you're prepared, being relaxed is going to help you more than being stressed out about shit is. Stress is the most useless emotion. It's so useless. And and it kept me from really enjoying the first few shows too. Mm-hmm. And I had some friends from my childhood who came along from like the Texas. And I think they stopped in Austin. But I wasn't able to like fully hang and chill with them because I was trying to micromanage shit. Mm-hmm. And now we got this good thing going where... You know, our tour manager Nils has been doing it for a while. Like we all kind of know what we have to do to get it done. And so we're really able to just have fun and enjoy the experience because who the fuck knows how long we'll get to do this. Yeah. Like I, I don't, let's keep it a hundred. If you're micromanaging, you can't chase pussy on the road. If you can't chase pussy, what's the point of being on the road? Uh, no, that's, that's a whole side conversation, <laughs> dude. I'm not a, I'm not a chaser. I am uh he's like, I'm not a chaser. These hoes chase me. They chase me, son. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I get a lot less pussy than other dudes that we know. No names will be named, but shout outs to bleep. No, I, was <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I do. All right. But that's not my MO. I don't I, fucking uh, with you. So anyway, you've, you guys have learned like all of your different roles. So now you're able to enjoy it and maybe like sit back and have a beer after the show without worrying about like, Oh my God, the merch is going to get stolen from the table or something, you know? Like, yeah. Although if you're the dude who's just having a beer right after the show and you're not helping move the gear, oh, back yeah, then, to the you're trailer, then you're a dumbass yeah, too. For sure. But yeah, for sure. And I, we're definitely going to do it again. One, at least one more time, but I try to treat every tour like it could be the last one. Let's make it special. Let's hit cities that we've never been to. Let's go to a country we've never been to. And I just feel super lucky, man. Like maybe I have another year left. Maybe I have another seven years. I don't know. And so I'm just trying to enjoy this rare chance to get to live my fucking dream that I had since I was 15 years old. And, and you know, I know there's a lot of people who don't get the opportunity to play to even, you know, 50 or a hundred people. And so to just try and realize how lucky I am to have this opportunity and be enjoying it. Are you kind of a naturally stressed dude? I am naturally stressed when I when I get nervous. Are you high strung? No. Yes and no. I'm, I'm high strung in certain situations. Cause like I want shit to go well and I'm a perfectionist. Are you control freak a little bit? I can be, but I also, I, I like to say that when I know that someone can do a job and it's going to get done right and they're good at it, that I can delegate to other people and not like have to control everything. Yeah. I don't like having to control everything. Sometimes I do become an asshole when I'm worried that it won't go well unless I like oversee shit, which, right. which I'm sure in some ways is a character flaw, but I also feel like has helped me, you know, on video shoots and stuff. You know, if we don't have a producer or something, I'll bring the coffee, I'll bring the bagels. Like I'm not, I'm also not afraid to do the, the little dirty job. jobs yeah, like I feel the same way. Help shit get on done. video shoots, man, I hate if there's a crew that's like trying to treat me as if I'm the talent. I hate that shit because yeah. like 
photo stuff is in my background. So I'm like trying to put up C stands and help right. with lighting and shit. I'm like, nah, let me Yeah, get let's in. get it done. Let's help. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, nah, I'm not the talent. Like I'm just trying to be here getting all of you guys to do something cool for cheap. So yeah, yeah. let me help, please. I agree with that. And and I love being on set. Actually shooting music videos is one of my favorite parts of the whole process because writing is so solitary and it's great when you write something. I'm, I mean, you could probably relate to this. When you write something that is fucking sick you're like this is a great feeling but then when you feel like you got nothing good to say it can be really lonely and really frustrating yeah and that's all that's most of my life that's most of every writer's yeah. life i feel like is just shit that you feel like sucks yeah, yeah and so when we're actually shooting videos collaborating with other people is my favorite thing to do and i feel like it's like like the theater kid in me is just like let's come together and make something and yeah. then party afterwards where does the professionalism come from uh oh god i don't know my dad's neurotic jewish upbringing i don't know it's probably deeply ingrained like i've always been a perfectionist i think that's why i got good at fast rapping is because it's like it's this intricate thing where you have to make sure every syllable is clear and you know it's it's very minute all the little like you really have to study stuff. which syllables work for it and stuff yeah and just do it over and over and over again yeah, just always I've always kind of been that kid. Were you into like puzzles as a kid? I liked puzzles. I was a chess player. Yeah. My dad and I played chess all the time. Your dad's a lawyer? No. What does he do? Hell no. My dad's a psychotherapist. Oh, a psychotherapist. And right. a poet by night. He like his original thing was he did haiku poetry. No shit. Yeah, he wrote pretty much exclusively haiku and now he does other long form stuff, but you know, he's like submitting to academic journals and you know what's interesting? Like after doing this for a certain amount of time, I try to look at it as for like what are themes and success. You know what I mean? And you would be surprised at the number of people that I end up having on the show whose parents are involved in psychology in one hmm. way or another. Interesting. A, lot, a high ratio. Makes people like, I don't know, overly analytical or think. Yeah, like, maybe you have to be more in tune with like yourself if you have parents that are like that or something. I well, don't know. Well, the backstory on one of the songs that I do at most of my shows, Wounded Healer, is that that's a term that, so my dad is what was called a Jungian analyst. Carl Jung was, uh, not a rival, but like he was around the same time as Freud and had some similar beliefs as Freud. J-U-N-G if you're trying, J-U-N-G if if you're you're trying, trying to Google, to Google yeah. it. Yeah. One of his things was dream analysis. So my dad's really into like, tell me what your dream is and I'll tell you everything about you. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is this concept of being a wounded healer, which is when you're a psychotherapist, Unlike in a lot of other psychotherapy practices, you're actually bringing your own emotional experience and empathy into the therapy work. Right. So that as opposed to being this like objective wall. You cry with them. Exactly. Yeah. Well, when I used to go to a a psychotherapist, that was what I chose to do was somebody who was like utilize the sessions to work through their problems as well. So we could kind of like end up crying a lot together. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. I think I kind of like that. I mean, I've never thankfully been in a therapy chair with my dad trying to analyze me yeah but i mean just in theory i like the idea of you know it's a person sitting across from you and you're telling them like really deeply vulnerable emotional things like isn't it kind of weird that they're sitting there with their legs crossed being like yes yeah right. yes okay thank you right right and the reason i bring up the the high ratio of like you know psychologist um parents my mom also is child psychologist right on um elementary school counselor my She's, mom's an elementary school librarian so. really oh my mom one of my mom's best friends is a uh, librarian so shout out to miss um, tilton hell yeah uh, she, who was also my librarian as a elementary school student anyway my point being is that i, I think maybe it breeds creativity because 
perhaps they are more sensitive to their children's feelings and goals hmm. and desires than other parents. Or, or, yeah. You know what I mean? Like uh, an understanding to like not uh, not put the kibosh on anything. Definitely. You know? And I think my dad had an upbringing that he was trying to avoid giving to his children. He felt very stifled by his mom. This like stereotypical Sheila Broslovsky type yeah. character. Mm-hmm. And... You know, he grew up in New York as an only child, and and I feel like he wanted to have a more free, loose, emotionally give-and-take mm-hmm. relationship with his kids. So, I mean, I feel like everything started with my folks. My mom and dad were really supportive of me, really, you know, I wish that they'd been shittier to me and given me some more material to write about, but I can't do anything but thank them for helping them put me in the position that, that I am now. Right, right. So your dad is raised in New York. How does he end up in San Francisco? He moved to the Bay, like, right around the Summer of Love. I think, like, 1968, 67, he did... Uh, young Hippie. Young Hippie. Well, he was a little bit of an older hippie. He's 72 now, 71. Really? He's eight years older than my mom, who was, like, a real young hippie. And they met in San Francisco in, like, 68, 69. That's another ongoing theme, too, in the story of successful independent musicians is older parents, huh. I found out, it's, which is interesting. Man, yeah, go figure. You gotta write a book about this stuff. I read too much Gladwell, so I, like, try to look okay. at these patterns and shit, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, yeah, there, there's been quite a few guests that have the older parents, hmm. which is a thing, too. So, are you the youngest sibling? I'm a twin. I'm a fraternal twin. You're a fraternal twin. I, I, feel, like I feel like I knew that, but I, that I didn't know that. that Not I a lot it. of people have met my brother. I mean, and please don't go out and seek him out on yeah. the internet, people who are listening, because he's sort of a private guy, but we're very different. And uh, he's a great guy, but our interests are like left brain, right brain. I mean, he's a helicopter. Walter Watsky. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. I guess I haven't said my name, so people can't, his names, so people can't really look it up, but... I guess I'll keep it that way, just out of his so, own okay, So your dad moves to San Francisco, summer of love type of thing, older hippie guy, and it's mm-hmm. just kind of like probably the opposite of New York. It's a little more, it's a little looser. Oh, it's, it's the West Coast New York, but I mean, San Francisco has always had a penchant towards liberalism and forward thinking. I mean, that was the epicenter of the whole hippie movement. Yeah, and it was San Francisco or bust. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that was the moment. That was one of the height of the hippie era, and then I feel like the bubble burst, the moment clock struck midnight on 1970 new year's eve it's not exactly how it happened but because that's how i imagine it yeah exactly yoko ono (laughs) (laughs) but um how do your folks meet out there i think they were introduced through a mutual friend and my mom was eight years younger and yeah they have a lot of awesome stories and san francisco is a very important part of me growing up in the story of my folks. My mom has an interesting story too, because she was born in Marin, which is just north of San Francisco. And her dad was a congressman. He was this guy named Clem Miller. His signature legislation, so he was in Congress in the 50s when my mom was young, and she has all these sisters and all these pictures of them like in Washington and campaigning for him. And he fought in World War II, then went to serve in Congress. And his signature legislation was this thing that made an area called Point Reyes, which is in Marina National Seashore. And it was the first national seashore in that area and it kept it from being developed. And so my family has stayed really involved in that area. It's this really beautiful part of the California coast. And then he was running for reelection when my mom was 12 and he died in a plane crash while he was campaigning for reelection to Congress. Wow. Then got posthumously reelected. It was wow. like this, this weird footnote of American history of the, the rare few people who have 
died and then been elected after their death. And it really profoundly affected that side of the family. And it was crazy because he was written about as like a possible presidential candidate. And he was just this really popular congressman. And then the rug got pulled out under the whole family. Wow. It was really hard because it totally challenged the identity that they'd built for themselves as this like elite Per, and, and I don't think they were douchey or snobby about yeah. it. I wasn't there, obviously, so right, I don't know. Right. But like, it, it changed everything. And and well, so, because all of a sudden the patriarch is gone. Yeah, it just didn't feel like this perfect all American family anymore. Right. And it affected everyone in different ways. But my mom stayed in San Francisco or moved back after going to some different schools and met my dad out there. And I, I guess the rest is history. Yeah. So was she still in school when they met and he was already kind of establishing a career or something? I can't r- tell the exact. I mean, either way, Pops it. was pimping if she's 12 years younger. <laughs> Eight years younger. Eight year, oh, my bad. Is that pimping now? No, I don't know. That's, that's average. That's about what, that's what about what I chase. <laughs> Jesus Eight, Christ. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Not probably lying. <laughs> Eight's not that bad. You know, they say the perfect age to marry is a woman that's half your age plus seven, right? Who's they in this scenario? They, you know, the, they, the, the proverbial, they. the proverbial they. But so, you know, half my age, 32 divided by two, 16 plus seven, 23. Okay. That's pretty good. Good age. And She's that's found her, her worldview by then. She can probably, probably hang with intuition. Let's keep it a hundred. Like a 23 year old girl is far more mature than me. Yeah, that's yeah. They mature on a faster curve, you know. It's like, I'm are, very childish. Are you at the place of like washing your dishes right after you cook? Yeah, of course. So, what's holding you back from the maturity? I wash my dishes while I'm eating. Like, yeah, uh, yeah like and while, while you're I'm taking cooking. a piss at the same time. Yeah, in the sink. I yeah. mean, that's where the immaturity comes in. I'm peeing in the sink. I'm. Using- that's also highly effective. I mean, you're getting a lot done. So in that I'm situation. a multitasker, you know, and the reason that I'm a multitasker is because I like my leisure time and I figure the more mm. things I can get done at once, mm. the more time that I can watch the real world. This all just makes me think you're very mature <laughs> and evolved. Perhaps, yeah. Perhaps I'm just lying about my immaturity. What we've on, we've gone on like three tangents it's from okay. our original story. It's okay. So your mom, uh, her dad dies at 12 and she stays in San Francisco is where we were at mm-hmm. and, uh, your folks meet and, and it, so it's just you and your brother. Yeah, just the two of no us. Other si- no sisters, no other, nobody else. And so they were, they're uh, one of these very intelligent couples that waits for a while to have kids. Yeah. They live their life together and make they sure did. they really liked each other. They had other. some adventures, yeah. That's awesome. I think, and that's a trend of smart people, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to have a kid for a while. I just feel like I j- finally hit that point where I've acknowledged that I do eventually want to have a kid. Yeah. Because for the longest time I was like, Probably what most guys say, like, nah, man, never, like... Really? I've always I'm not going out like that, really? I've always wanted to have kids simply because I, like, want to coach baseball teams again. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good reason. What if you have an unathletic kid? Oh, fuck. Uh, You haven't even thought about this. Selling them to the black market. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I'm sure... I was a little eager, man. I played baseball in high school. I know. We've talked about that. we've had this conversation, probably on the Knox City podcast. Yeah, and we're both baseball fans, I think. Yeah. You know who I'm uh, photographing next week? Who? Big Poppy. Oh, wow. David Ortiz. Really? Yeah, one of your Boston brethren. Yeah, I mean, I'm a Giants fan. Yeah, obviously. And actually, that's part of my dad's backstory is he had a therapist when he was growing up in New York, and he was very alienated from his friends because he was like a 16-year-old prodigy who graduated high school at 16 and then started NYU when he was 16 years old, and he wasn't fitting in with anyone. So his therapist was like, well, why don't you read the baseball box score 
and then you'll have something to talk about the next day with your friends. So he became a statistic fanatic? He became a baseball fan just through his therapist telling him to read the box scores and have numbers to talk about. And then he started liking it. Why was he going to a therapist? I feel like at that time, maybe that was somewhat of a rarity or no? He credits his therapist with saving his life when he was younger. He was suicidal and he wanted to go into therapy because he felt like his therapist gave him a second chance at life. Yeah. And kept him from killing himself. Yeah. And he feels like it's a very noble thing to and do. And that inspired him to get into what he's doing? Yeah. 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 That's awesome. And so he was a Giants fan when they were playing in New York at the Polo Grounds. The San Francisco Giants originally started as a New York franchise. Right, right. And played in Manhattan, where my dad grew up. And so that was his team. And then around the same time, I can't say the exact year that the Giants moved to... I think they moved to Seal Stadium in San Francisco first. It was but, May 22nd, uh, 1972. It was, like, it was, it was Willie Mays era. Yeah. And I, it was, I think it was the 60s. They moved and they started playing at Candlestick. And my dad, I don't think he followed the Giants across the country, but it was around the same time. And that was another cool thing is I grew up a Giants fan, just like my dad grew up a Giants fan, even though he was in New York yeah. and I came to San Francisco with them. Two highly intelligent parents. They bred a very highly intelligent child as well. Right, Did thanks. any of that emotional baggage carry down? Were you, were you ever a, a beat up suicidal teen? Uh, from my parents? No. I've had some friends. This is getting a little bit, a little serious on a serious note. You know, I've had friends and my dad's friend all take their lives like in the past couple years. Oh. And I, I've never, I never from a very deep emotional place understood how you get to that level. I've never been able to completely put myself in the shoes of someone who's taking their own lives. Cause I feel so like, like my emotional baggage comes from the fear of mortality. Like the idea that I won't be here anymore. You have a desire to leave a legacy. I just want to live. I love living. Like I like being here. I don't care about the legacy. I, I don't want to think about what happens after I'm dead. Cause I like fucking breathing. I like walking around. I like doing shit. Yeah. And so the, I getting to a place emotionally where you just want to check out is, is so hard for me to, I'm, I get it intellectually, but in my heart, it makes me so sad. And I've seen it happen to people that I love and it's tough. And it's the scariest thing to hear when somebody that you love is, is like battling with that. And, and we didn't even hear it. I mean, it just, for the people that it happened to us, it came out of complete left field. You know, they hit it really, really well. And one was my dad's best friend who was also a therapist. And the other was one of my friends who worked on all my music videos with me. And so I saw it from two angles. You oh, know, so one, this was just recently? Within the last like year or so, Holy year shit. and a half. That's terrible. I didn't know that. I guess the first, yeah, when we were on the Nothing Like the First Time tour, it might have been Cardboard Castles even. I mean, it's all blurring together, but it was, you know. Yeah, it's pretty recently and it's definitely a kind of, helped inform the way that I've just been looking at things recently, which is, I always say that I believe in that the most important thing is to be grateful for what you have. And I have trouble living that on a daily basis. It's the simplest and hardest thing at the same time. It's like, what's more simple than just being thankful for what we have and how, how unusual it is to get to even live. You know, you think about the logic of being one, like a one in a million sperm, you know, just getting to the point of being born Mm -hmm. is a fucking crazy lottery win. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, for me to be able to like live out my dreams and stuff, you know, it kind of makes everything, if you're able to really internalize that feeling, it should free you from any feeling of self-pity or anger and, and it doesn't always because I'm a flawed person and I fuck up and I'm not always capable of seeing what's right in front of my nose. But 
you know, I've been trying to, to let those things, those, you know, those experiences, the fact that other people were battling through such serious things inform me not checking out or feeling sorry for myself too. And that's one of those, uh, conflicts that will eternally uh, exist with somebody who's, or like trying to balance being grateful for what you do have while also striving to gain more. Right. And it's a catch 22. It's one of those things. Cause as soon as you're grateful for something that you have, that feeling makes you want to get more. And I think that that's like, if I were to, to break down my one page, like psychological breakdown, it's that imbalance that can never really be satisfied by the idea that the career that I've chosen requires you to keep putting yourself out there and want to keep growing and have fans and this stuff. And, and I know that it is in a way deeply hypocritical because why should you care? Yeah. Like how does that validation make you an important person? And I know that there is something inside of me that is running away from what I know to be true, which is we all die and none of this fucking matters. Yeah, totally. And, and I believe that. Like, you know, a million years from now, we're going to be a faint fucking carbon footprint. It, yeah. It, what we did will not be remembered by a mile of tar beneath the surface of the earth. Right, right. And I mean, you can think of that like in functional way, like, you know, name one famous actor from fucking the 20s. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like nobody remembers who like leaving a legacy doesn't even matter to a certain extent because eventually it all goes away. Yeah. And even... So take as a counterexample, the person who most famously battled against that feeling Shakespeare. I mean, most of his work is about that. Yeah. All of it is this feeling of leaving a legacy and him feeling like, I mean, most of the famous sonnets and because I'm a half-assed intellectual, I can't quote a single one of them to you, but it's all, it's all about that same feeling. And he's actually managed to build this multi-century legacy for himself because he's so brilliant. Mm. But even Shakespeare a million years from now won't fucking matter. And he was the dude right. for like the last thousand years. You right, know? So right. if I was really, really on my 2014 resolutions shit, I would be meditating an hour a day and trying to like, even while I'm working, I mean, theoretically there's a way to balance I, there's there's these like Zen metaphors that are supposed to help you see this like while you're walking down the path and enjoying the things that are next to you in the path, you're also concentrated on the city that you're going to. So if you imbalance either of those two things, then your life tips too far in either direction. You know, if you're always concentrating on the flowers and the birds that you pass on the path, then you get lost and you don't know where you're walking to. But if you're constantly focused on the city you're walking to and you don't see anything that's around you while you're walking, then you fucked up and you're not enjoying the journey. Yeah. And then when you get to the city, you're not going to be enjoying the city because you're going to be focused on the next one. So, you know, that's the whole big thing is finding balance. And I am. Well, that's an interesting analogy, because as you mentioned with your career path and what you've chosen to do and how you say, oh, you know, every tour might be the last. That's the whole thing about touring and, and the music industry in general. It's like. If it's more of the same, you're failing, i.e. meaning like, okay, hey, cool. You played the Troubadour last year. Like, okay, if you're not playing the Fonda next year, you know, maybe shit's not going so right. good. Or if the, like, if you go from the Troubadour d- back down to like the Viper Room, like, oh shit, your shit is on the decline or That's whatever. What say. They either you're on the way up or you're on the way down. Yeah, exactly. There's no, you can't uh, have just a steady career with this. It's It's hot and cold. And to a certain extent, everyone has to make the music for the love of the art. Yeah. But at the same time, how do you balance that fucking fear of the numbers chasing you all the time? You know what I mean? 
I think that the only way to balance it is by enjoying the present moment. And you you never know if there's going to be a show tomorrow. So while you're up there on stage at the Troubadour, you better fucking enjoy it Mm -hmm. because it's a rare privilege to have. We are this group of extremely lucky individuals who don't have to join steel together or flip burgers to make a living and get to do something that many people would only dream of. And so to only be focused on the business side of it, I think is, is like a real fucked up douchey thing to do because you're living the dream. You know, this idea that if you're not on top or you're not number one, then you're not succeeding to me. That's just sad. Like, yeah, maybe that'll get you ahead because you're focused on, on being the best all the time. But if you're the best and you don't enjoy it, to me, you've missed out on the most important thing, which is getting to enjoy this weird trip of a life that we have. And again, I'll say for the millionth time, like I can say all that. It's another thing to actually live to it. Live it for so sure. I'm no, trying. That's a, yeah, that's a very like noble uh, gesture and idea. But it's like, yeah, living that is two different things. And I'm sure, just like anybody else, the numbers stress you. You know, yeah, it, it has to. It it does me, and I don't even have nearly the numbers you have. You know what I'm saying? So. And another thing is having this big band that I tour with. I do feel responsible because they've bought in and believe in what we're doing too. Yeah. They revolve around your universe now. They have other stuff going on, but at the same time we believe in this thing, like this progress, this it's been a great journey for us, but there's only so long that you can afford to live on 20 grand a year and be able to keep living your life. You know, if there's not growth for me to be able to pay the guys a a living wage, then they just can't, aren't going to be able to afford to do it. You know, imagine when people have families and stuff. Exactly. We're young now, but if stuff doesn't grow, you can't yeah. keep on in the same way. Yeah. With that being said, the internet has kind of sh- changed the game a little bit because you have a direct relationship with your fans. And, you know, for the people who are my fans who are listening, this is not like me trying to be a rapper for a couple of years. You know, I, I don't see another path for myself, so I'm going to keep making stuff regardless it's just the way that it's presented to people might change, but who knows? It might not. Well, whatever. Well, fuck. Maybe we'll have a can't hold us next year and shit will be crazy. And, and just never br- know. Yeah. And that brings me to, you know, the next topic of conversation where we can kind of backtrack further into the beginning. Like one thing that I think you have done over the last couple of years that I've known you and watched you is like, you've established a fan base that genuinely cares about you and that will stick around. They're not, you haven't built a trend hopping fan base. You know what I mean? You're not the dude that's on like the hot blog of the day. It's like, nah, your fans have sought you out and they're there for you. And what is impressive to me about that is that you got on the map with like a viral video. And I'm sure that we talked about this in the last podcast, but it was almost three years ago and I don't fucking remember, but like, I know that you knew that that was going to go because you're a smart dude. How were you prepared to continue afterwards? How did you prepare yourself to continue on that path? Because you seem to have an innate knowledge of how YouTube worked as soon as that started happening. I think I saw certain trends of what people were sharing and I didn't know that it would work that well, but I had a hunch. I mean, it was basically designed to be a shared piece of content. Absolutely. From the title to the content. I mean, from the moment that it was conceived, it was like, how do I encapsulate what I do in 90 seconds, make it shareable and then have it be interesting enough so that people would want to check out my other work. Right. I had a lot of pre-existing work, which is similar to what happened to Macklemore on a smaller scale, except that his viral video was an actual song rather than a viral video. And that was the interesting thing about when I watched your video, I'm a dude who I watch a video and then I click around somebody's YouTube channel and I said, I went, Oh wait, 
this guy isn't some flash in the pan. Like he actually has a, a solid base of knowledge and experience prior to this. And, and, I, I, and I listened to a lot of your poems and I was like, oh shit, like this guy's something. Right on. Thank you. So yeah. so yeah, that was kind of the hope of the strategy and that worked for some people and for some other people, they only saw the video and right. that stuck in their head as the defining trait. And that's, that is the drawback of doing it that way mm-hmm. you get the big bump you get a lot more traffic and then people might discover your other stuff and then there's other people who might not bother to check who then have this image in their head of you you're a pale kid who raps fast exactly and i had the follow-up video already before we shot the fast rap video i shot the fucking mc name video which is the one we dropped a month later yeah so my Great strategy video direction i really like that right video. on thank you and so that was actually done before that and we were just anticipating let's have something ready to go and, and something that also showcased those skills, but in a way that was like a song form. So I'm not immediately turning around and doing pale kid raps faster. Yeah. And that's the reason that I didn't respond to the Mac lethal stuff. It was like, you know, I have nothing against what he did, but I'm not trying to like go down this road of fast rap. Like, you know, I didn't want that to become what I was all about. So I, I made a conscious decision of let's play the long game, churn out content, just, if we shed fans because that's not what they're expecting from me, then that means that those aren't people who really love the core of what I do. And it's probably better to shed them now than have them realize in three years that I'm a fraud. So it's just, the idea is just put out shit that we like just, and then keep putting it out and putting it out and putting it out. And if we can't have one big video again, we're just going to grind it out and win a f- one fan at a time or, you know, 10 at a time, as opposed to a million on something that, doesn't have the staying power. You know, you mentioned to me in our, in our text conversation that we were having before you came on that like with this record cycle, pretty much every song has a video at this point. Like you're, you're down to your last three songs that don't have a video. And thankfully you're going to perform one today for us. And I said, man, how like, that's amazing. Like how the fuck do you plan that out? And you're like, you know, I live broke and put and invest everything back into my music videos. How have you gone about building a team for that? Because it seems like the people that you have around you are all exceptionally talented and loyal and, and they believe in you. Well, I went to film school. So a lot of the people who I went to college with, we moved out to LA together and we were learning on our feet. We were doing guerrilla style shoots before I had a big YouTube following, we were trying to get better at video making and it's all the same people who direct and DP my videos now. So we've kind of grown together, learned how to do this. We know who we need to hire for a shoot. We know how much it's going to cost us. And I've tried to pay people equitably as we've done this both in my band and on shoots. And you know, if any of them are listening, I hope they feel the same way. And it's not like anyone's getting rich off this, but I feel like any of the money that we get from tour, it's kind of, okay, how do we redistribute this to the people who all work to make what we do happen? Because I'm the name on the videos and I get to be front and center on stage at tour, but there's 35 people who I could list off who that George been, Watsky wouldn't exist without exactly who've worked their ass off in every phase of the production of what we do. So one, it's try to actually put my money where my mouth is and show those people that I value their contributions to what we do, that they are not replaceable, that they're not, that I'm not just going to, you know, move on to cheaper labor because I don't feel like that's how you build a strong team. Like you, you do it by showing folks that you care about them. And so that's one thing. And I also think that we've put out good stuff that we're all really proud of. So as long as we continue to be excited about what we do, then people are going to want to keep working on it keep moving forward and not just 
you know, put out crap that we know is going to get a lot of hits, but right. doesn't excite us creatively. Right. You mentioned that you went to film school, but you also mentioned your dad being prodigious youth. And I would imagine that some of that carried over. You probably very, I think school probably fit you pretty well. I did all right in school. I did really well until halfway through my eighth grade year in middle school. And then I got in a lot of trouble. And this is actually probably going to reveal things about my character. That, Why like, did you get bored? I, did I not tell the story in the last podcast? I don't remember. So I'll, I'll start to tell it again, and then if it sounds like a rehash, then I, stop I think me. A, I think most of the people have probably forgotten it, and I know that they deleted all those podcasts, so, right. it, so it doesn't exist anymore. So what happened in the middle of my eighth grade year was I had just gotten a boombox for Christmas, and I, for some reason my parents also... Either they gave me like a Sam Goody gift certificate or a Tower Records gift certificate, or they actually gave me the Nelly CD Country Grammar, and that was the first CD that I owned, and I played it nonstop and I guess it was okay I went to a big public middle school and I don't know why I was allowed to just carry this boombox around the hallways playing this song over and over again but but that's what I did in eighth grade I loved it I loved the song ride with me and that was when I was first starting to listen to hip-hop and I brought it this is the last day before spring break and I'd been carrying it around so it's probably March I'd probably been carrying this thing around for two and a half months I had it in my locker and gym and we were waiting after gym, we have to wait after we change out of our gym uniforms for the bell to ring until we can go to our next class. And we were waiting, and I guess I had to, like, take a piss really bad or something. And this one gym teacher, who was this, like, notorious, stuffy Canadian dude, wouldn't let me go to the bathroom. And so what I did is I put on Ride With Me with my boombox that I was carrying, and I started freestyle battling at him. And it was this one— I don't remember this story at all. It was this one-sided freestyle battle, and— in my mind, I was just like eight miling it, Killing like fucking it. crushing. I'd been watching like, you know, 106 in Park every day and yeah, stuff and yeah. take out the basement. And so I thought, I'm sure the image of what was happening in my head was very different from what was actually happening. Yeah, yeah. Because we're probably mad confused, but I was just like tearing into this dude as if it was a rap battle that he had. It was agreed, like the Saul Williams scene in jail <laughs> yeah, or something. In you know? Slam, yeah, yeah exactly. Slam, yeah. Something like that. And then, and then the bell rang and I just went off to my next class which was geometry and, or I can't remember, algebra, something yeah. like that. Mr. Sidrakian, shout out to Mr. Sidrakian. I went to this class and the phone rang and I was the kind of kid in middle school, like I was always getting into trouble, even though I was doing all right grade wise. Why? Class clowns? I was smart, class clown kind of dude, smart aleck yeah, dude. Yeah. And so anytime a phone rings in class, I've had this feeling like, oh, fuck. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's about me. Right. I always felt like if the phone rang, I was about to get called guilty, to the office. Guilty conscience. And so I got called to the office, and I went down there, and there were two uniformed police guards and the principal and the vice principal of the school. And the first thing they did before they said anything to me was they read me my Miranda rights. What? Yeah. For rap battling? <laughs> Dude. And then they said, do you know why you're here? I was like, well, uh, I don't know. They said, Mr. He's in the other room and he's too distraught to see you right now. What? He's really broken up and we have Damn, a couple- Damn, you fucking ethered him. I do. Apparently, I really, really made him reconsider his life or wow. something. I, I don't know. I guess I was a better battler than I thought I was. Yeah. But he didn't want to see me. He was broken up in the other room and they said, we could take you to juvenile hall for a long time because you threatened the life of an employee of a San Francisco Unified School District. Whoa. So this was like some like death threat shit that they were bringing me in on because i guess he didn't know what freestyle battling was or something he just thought i don't remember exactly what i said 
but apparently I got pretty graphic with it. Yeah. Like, so when you're you know, like, yo, ho- I'm going to kill it. Like, on some horrorcore, like, uh, I'm going to get a knife and chop you up into little bits kind of thing. Whoa. But I mean, I'm, I imagine, like, I said, like, I'm going to get a knife and chop you up into little bits. Yeah. Lyrically. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember. I was in a, a blackout state of. I'm going to chop you into little bits on the mic. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I, I can't remember. I, I'm going to take their word for it and assume that I actually said something. Damn, so you were like under arrest, right? When you got there, they didn't arrest me. Well, if they read you the Miranda rights, that's arrest, isn't it? I don't think so. So they were just fronting on you. I think they were, they were trying to scare me Yeah. or not, or they really wanted to see how I would react to it. I started crying. Oh, so see, I feel like the proper thing would have been to be like, y'all know me. No, you don't know me. I was such a, such a little bitch about it, dude. No, for sure. I was so scared. And, oh yeah. And so they didn't end up taking me to juvenile hall, but they did. This had a lot of fallout for me at school. I like got, cause you know, in juvie you're getting raped. Oh yeah. You were small, bro. And I looked good too. (laughs) You got that good skin. I mean, I look good now, but I looked really good though. You were ripe. I was ripe for ripe the bacon, dog. Oh man, no. yeah. I met a met a friend named Tiny. Actually, I've <laughs> I've been to jail, man. I'm hardened more than you know. I'll tell that story next. Wait, so so there's um, a fallout at school. Why? So I got suspended, and I went from being like you know a smart aleck who the teachers kind of put up with to being this like pariah. Mm. I got taken off the honor roll. I got chosen to speak at graduation, and they revoked that from me. Mm. I couldn't go on the class field trip. I was just like, I rode out the string at my middle school as like that fucking crazy kid. Yeah. Cause before that, man, I've gone through such weird stigma periods in my life, man. Before that, I was the seizure kid. I had two big seizures in front of everybody. One of them in gym class in seventh grade. Yeah. I collapsed on the blacktop and had a big- Why gotta be black? No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) Dude, I came, I came down hard on that blacktop. From what? Um, From what? low blood sugar or something i don't know i I was diagnosed with juvenile epilepsy oh wow and i went on depakote for it which is a seizure suppression medicine but it's also i found out later depression and bipolar medicine yeah, yeah. which is crazy i guess it, it calms your brain waves in a way that treats that's like that treats off, that's like epilepsy in the same way it's like an off-label thing or something no 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 it's it's a it's prescribed unknown brand yeah. yeah but it was weird because i got put on it as a seizure suppression medicine and then later found out that it's also a mood stabilizer which was upsetting to me yeah because it's as a middle school kid it's like you're you're giving me a very powerful psychotropic psycho, yeah or is that what you call it? Psycho? psycho something yeah you know drug and it did change my mood and I went off it after a while, but I was on that until, uh, like, I don't know, my sophomore year of high school no or something. Shit. Did you ever have any more seizures? Other than those two? I had one in front of everybody in gym class and then one at a bowling alley with like a few friends. Mm. That was a few weeks later. That's scary. And then I went on the drug and then I didn't have any more after that. And then I had like a normal EEG years later and they just took me off it. So yeah. it's not something that I've dealt with in years, but it was kind of crazy. So that was like, I was the seizure kid. And then when you were the pariah, were you already writing poetry at that point? Not yet. Or was the freestyle battle like your first, that was like, oh wait, I got rhymes. I mean, I would, it wasn't just that battle. Like at every dance I would go and the DJs usually had like a little mic mic, and I would ask them if I could freestyle for everybody, like over a juvenile beat or something. And if they said no, I would just fucking take the mic and then do it until they unplugged me. (laughs) I was like, I don't know, dude. I was in, in some ways I was really bold. Yeah. Young punk rock. Yeah, I guess. But it, but, but no one was probably into it. I was just like in my own fucking world of feeling like I was crushing shit. Yeah. And I really thought I was good. Like, I, I don't know. I was just kind of fearless in, in a way and douchey in another way. 
Were you an attention seeker, like, naturally, even, like, even as a little child? Yeah, I can't really lie and say I wasn't. Like, if you say that you and your brother are the opposites, was he's kind of quiet and reserved, and you were the alcohol, look at me, look at me. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a pretty good description of it. Yeah. I was, like, in plays and stuff like that. So as you're a pariah, do you start to, like, fall out of love with school or what? Because I always picture you as a fucking straight-A student. Yeah, I kind of did fall out of love with school. I stopped caring about getting straight-A's. Yeah. I realized once I got taken off the honor roll that I didn't give a fuck that I was taken off the honor roll and that there were things that I could do with my time that were things I was more passionate about that didn't include being perfect in school. Right. So I was not a a strong thing to figure out at a young age. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that kind of makes sense because when I started high school, I was never a straight A student in high school. At my school, I was probably actually below average GPA and stuff like that. But I was working hard, but I was working hard on my own shit. I, I fell in love with Poetry Slam and with rapping. And, and so you started utilizing time to educate yourself in your passions. Yeah, I guess so. I was really, really into spoken word all the way through high school. Yeah. I got involved with an organization called Youth Speaks, which was this nonprofit writing center in San Francisco. And I used to like host the youth open mics in the city and do slams. And then after I graduated, I worked there for a year. And so I, I was working hard it was just kind of outside of the framework of school yeah i've always thought that like the moment that i actually really started to learn is when i wasn't in school anymore and i could choose what i wanted to read and all of a sudden i was like yeah whoa like there is so much shit that i can learn that i that i didn't know and that i'm super passionate Man. about dude i go on wikipedia binges all the time and a lot of it is stuff that i was supposed to be reading in high school yeah that i was just like ah oh, fuck it right so how did you uh, end up going to jail let's hear that story my buddy jackson who directs most of my videos has an aunt who was turning a hundred a few years ago. Wow. And that's an old ass aunt. That's an old ass aunt. I think it's a great aunt. Yeah. Maybe a great, great aunt. I can't remember, but this aunt is obsessed with narwhals and narwhals. For those of you who don't know, that's the Canadian interviever from Toronto or from Vancouver, right? Nardwar. Oh, 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 no, never mind. (laughs) I wish she was obsessed with narwhal. By the way, nardwar, if you're listening to this, holler at me. Yeah. Interview my boy Watsky, nardwar. Yeah, man. Um, Nardwar probably knows about narwhals. Narwhals are these like swimming unicorns. They're dude. the horned, they're, the horned They're whales. the one horned dolphin. Yeah. Yeah. And they're this rare. Mystical creatures. Mystical, but real. Yeah. They're a real creature and they're hunted by the Inuits up in like Alaska Shout and out. North Canada. Shout out Shout to out. all my Inuits, all my Athabascans, all my Clinkets. You feel me? Go ahead. Damn. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I guess you're from up there, huh? Yeah. She bought one. She Well, she bought a tusk. She was on a cruise to Canada, I guess, when she was like 97 or something. And she's obsessed with this animal. And there's a picture of her when I later visited her house and saw her fridge. She's got a Polaroid of her standing over a bloody narwhal carcass holding its tusk up in the air. So this is not like a cutesy, like my little pony narwhal obsession for her. Yeah. That's she's like, on some, I, she's like, I want to kill these. She's on some like Edmund Hillary, like old school explorer, like... I like narwhals, but I also like seeing them bloody on the ground with yeah. my foot over them kind of shit. Wow. And so she bought this tusk. You know, it's illegal to hunt narwhals because they're an endangered species, except for native tribes. Certain tribes, right. Who have like it's historical. Part of their tradition. It's part of their tradition. And they have a grandfathered in part of the law that says yeah. they're allowed to do it and they're allowed to profit off it and use it as part of their economy. Right. So she bought a tusk legally from this. Inuit tribe in northern Canada and then sailed back down the coast on some Canadian cruise ship. But then when she was trying to cross the border into the United States, the tusk got confiscated at the border or they didn't let her bring it across Yeah, because it's illegal to import ivory to the United States to take it across state line or 
international yeah, yeah. lines. Right, right. So she had to stash it at the apartment of a friend in Vancouver. She keistered it. I don't keister. I don't know that word. <laughs> oh, she stuck it up her ass. Oh my god, she's a hundred year old woman. Of course she did. I'm sure she tried. <laughs> that would that joke would have gone so much better if you if you knew what keister meant. I mean, I immediately as soon as I figured out what a keister was. God sorry, damn it! Sorry. Go ahead. Man. Your reaction to that was amazing. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Gone down a dark rabbit okay, hole now. Okay, so Aunt Ida, the fucking nar- narwhal bleeding. hunter, is what is trying to smuggle this horde. Well, she didn't try to smuggle it. She just gave up and left it at the apartment of a friend up there. In Canada. If anything, so moving on. She left it at the apartment of a friend in Vancouver yeah. and then for three years was begging her family to go get it for her. Uh-huh. And Jackson was telling me about that story when we were sitting around the fire as we were living together in L.A., the same moment that he told me that she had her hundredth birthday party coming up in Denver two weeks later. And we had this epiphany moment where we were like, Harold and Kumar are going to dude, get the fucking narwhal. That's exactly horn. what happened. Yeah. So we were just like, Holy shit. Like we can't pass up this opportunity. We planned it out and we, first the shit that a whole album is made out of right there. It's crazy. And so we just packed up my hatchback and then drove up. It's a thousand miles to Vancouver, a thousand miles from Vancouver to Denver and a thousand miles in a triangle from Denver back to the, to LA. Yeah. So that was our plan. And we like went through all these plans of how we were going to get the narwhal tusk across the border. And I'm sure keistering it came. Hey, <laughs> we must have thought of about it. One of you guys could have fitted up there. I'm sure. Absolutely. I'm, I mean, I don't know anyway, which one of us so, is more hollowed so, out. What happens? We ultimately decided that the best thing to do would be to not even try and hide it at all, just to hide it in plain sight. So that way, if we got caught, we could feign ignorance. Yeah. And so we just, we went up and we got it, went to Vancouver, put it under a bunch of clothes in the back of my hatchback and then drove across the border. And, and we got searched on the way into Canada, which made us really scared Sketch, that we were on yeah. some kind of list, like searches on the way out. So we almost didn't even do it, but we got this thing and it was fucking awesome is like this four foot piece of ivory that's in this perfect spiral, spiral. Yeah, yeah it looks really really cool but we didn't get any trouble like we crossed the canadian border at midnight or 1 a.m and they waved us right through yeah. and we put on our like party in the usa like victory mix and we're just like bumping it and fucking stoked that we'd succeeded yeah and we still had to get to denver so we had a thousand miles to drive and we spent the next night in like montana or something then when we were driving through Wyoming, and I think we had two hours to go left to get to Denver, it was the night before her birthday party. The light was still out, so it was sometime around dusk, and her birthday was the next day. Jackson was driving and got pulled over by a Wyoming patrolman for speeding. Ugh. Yeah. I know. It was the dumbest mistake. It was like, dude. And Put he, on the cruise control, bro. He's, yeah. And so we told our story to this patrolman. We had a some backstory wanted to know why we were going because we'd taken this suspicious trip from la to vancouver yeah. to denver obviously heroin heroin like it's a drug route that's yeah. what he said he was like this is like a drug trade route that you're on yeah you guys have any drugs in the car we're like no like absolutely not no drugs he was like all right then do you mind if i search your car yeah and we have this piece of ivory and we've done all the like back research work to be like okay how much trouble could we get in for smuggling ivory yeah and it is no fucking joke. Like people go, and usually it's not like one tusk or something, but people go to jail for a long time for bringing ivory across yeah, international yeah. borders. Because you're killing really cute animals usually for ivory. I guess it's like a lot of elephants. People is the like big elephants, deal. Yeah, yeah. But it falls under the same part of the law. Yeah. And there's really stiff legal penalties. So this guy asks if he can search our car, and we know we have this tusk in the back. 
So we give him consent to search the car, yeah. even though we didn't have to because we're fucking idiots. Right. So we're standing by the side of the road watching this patrolman search our car, getting closer and closer to the tusk, getting increasingly frustrated because he thinks he has us. Like, he thinks he has us on some shit, and he's about to give up, and then he's about to go through the clothes in the back of the trunk, and then our hearts are just beating out of our chest, and he's and like, you're like, we have a tusk. Nope. No. He says, all right. You know, we don't like liars here in Wyoming. Oh, shit. Holds up my little one hitter piece that I'd forgotten about oh, back God. there. Yeah, of course. I hadn't smoked it in like a year or something. I don't know. It, it didn't have any weed in it. And he he's like, it's got resin in it, though. Yeah. He gets me on possession for fucking resin. But the thing is, so he finds it and he's like. You said you didn't have any drugs. Oh, God. Shouldn't have lied to me. That's like a big mistake. Requiem for a dream shit or something. Yeah. So he's like, all right, you can either fly back to Wyoming for your court date or I can bring you to jail right now. And I don't want to like go to L.A. and then have to fly back to Wyoming for a court date. So I go with him and he thinks he's found what we were trying to hide from him. So he immediately stops looking, lets Jackson drive off to Denver with the tusk in the back of the car and I went the other direction and in the back of the squad like, car. You, my fucking hero. Dude, you brought me the tusk. Well, well, so I spent the night in jail in Douglas County, Wyoming, and then had my arraignment the next morning. And Did you just get a fine or something? Yeah. Man, but the worst thing about it was my feet were so cold at night. I had a little single cell, and they wouldn't bring my socks to me. <laughs> <laughs> I just had bare feet the whole night. Oh. And it was a bright room. Like, they don't turn the lights off or anything. Uh, it was un- Other than that perfectly pleasant and uh did you get your hair braided while you were in there <laughs> yeah did you <laughs> well i met my tiny the next morning so i i shuffled down the hallway in my orange jumpsuit with my arms and my legs shackled together oh my god and barefoot I, was, mm, I guess i had slippers my shoes back at yeah, that yeah, point yeah. i don't remember yeah. i think we had slippers and i can positively say we had slippers because one of the things i remember was it was this tiny little arraignment room with the judge the bailiff and i had a joint arraignment with a guy named <laughs> who was a 250 to 300 pound carnival worker yeah i was apparently three blocks from the wyoming state fair and the same time i was getting arrested they'd rounded up carnival workers who'd failed to register as sex offenders upon getting work in wyoming whoa and so he was arraigned on charges of failing to register as a sex offender in the state and i remember looking down and seeing his green toenails on his sandals and thinking what the fuck am i doing here and we both had to tell our i don't know if this is a normal thing to have a joint arraignment but like we told our stories back to back and his was just so sad and like he was going to be in there for a long time. And they're just like, oh, yeah. And then George, we found a one hitter. Yeah. And the judge was like, get the fuck. What? Why are you in jail? What are yeah, you doing here? Yeah. He was like, you know, if you go to California now that you're going to kind of have a record for this, I would recommend that you get a medical marijuana card because yeah. that way, if you get caught again. Yeah. yeah. The judge told me <laughs> to get a weed judge card. Is like, hey, man, legalize like, your habit, bro. bro. Yeah. Like, it's not a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> So, so then, that's what so I did. How did you get to Denver? So then it was her birthday party was that afternoon and Jackson's parents had flown into Denver because it's a big family, like so 100th old, birthday. Old Michael goes and packs up the Ferris wheel and puts you in the back of his 16 wheeler and drives you to Denver and yeah. saves the day. No, <laughs> no. Cause Michael was going to be in jail for the next like two years or something. I don't know. Man. Like I don't, I have no idea. Thank God you weren't sharing a cell with that guy with bare feet. You yeah. Know? You man. don't know what kind of green toes you'll catch. Small fucking victories, man. I got out of jail. They let, they released me immediately. I, they didn't even charge me a fine cause they felt bad for me that I'd had to spend the night in jail. Um, but I was put on a year's probation and I walked down the street 
and went to the state fair. I was like, really? Yeah, I went and I got a 10 gallon hat and a slushy and some nachos. Then I watched like bull riding. And you're and like, shit. yo, Michael sent me. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't make my connection to this, this pedophile known. <laughs> I wandered around the fair and I waited. And then Jackson and his parents came and picked me up. They drove, it was two hours from Denver. They drove back to pick me up wow. in Douglas County. I had my slushy and my cowboy hat and I was like, I just got out of jail and hopped in their car and we drove back to Denver and got to Aunt party like half an hour before it started yeah. and pulled her aside. She was just in a crabby mood. And well, I mean, she's a hundred. We got there right before anybody else did. And we were like, Hey, we got something to show you. And she's like, all right, all right. What is it? And we hand her this PVC pipe and she starts pulling the tusk out of it slowly. And as she gets it further out, it starts to dawn on her what she's holding. And this look of just, astonished joy comes onto her face. She holds it up in the air. She says, they've done it! They've done it! They've done it! <laughs> and she just fucking loses her shit, dude. Oh, she starts, shit. she starts like, like, like parading around the room with this thing. It was the craziest. It, it, it And then it, she like stabs a poodle with it or she something. She stabs a poodle. She starts fucking Zorroing it around. That's awesome. Carving L's in people's chests. She holds it and is able to sh- immediately shoot lasers from the tip of it. That's probably an understatement of what happened. It was crazy because we thought she would be stoked, but she was so beyond yeah. like what anything. If, what if you'd have just accidentally given her a heart attack? Yeah, that like, would have been the, that would have been the crazy like Wes Anderson end to the terrible. story. I mean, I think the real question about that whole story is do you have your mug shot and are you going to use it as an album cover? You know what? I tried to get my mug shot from Wyoming and I was like, you have to release this to me. This is public information. And they were like, all right, sue us and we'll give it to you. Whoa. Yeah. Well, now you have to blow up because then they'll have a reason to leak it. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're like, oh, you know, like the old, this is Bill Gates in jail. It's like, oh, here's Joe Jawatsky in jail in Wyoming. Yeah. Well then I don't think that they're going to be too stoked on it because I've now implicated myself in a felony that they didn't catch me for. Mm. So I didn't even think of that. You know what? The way I feel is if this gets out and I am am actually arrested for tusk smuggling, that's actually going to be something that will spin positively in my favor mm, so i'm mm. i'm okay with that happening if that's how i go out i feel like tusk smuggling is actually slang in jail as well for you know other keystring yeah keystring the d intuition's <laughs> 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 new rap name is d keister oh shit <laughs> d keistro i like uh, it dude that's uh, great um so yeah it was crazy she was so excited about it and she only wanted to talk to us her whole hundredth birthday party. She still to this day, and I doubt, she, no offense to you, doubt she's a kind of neat podcast listener. Yeah. She doesn't know that I spent the night in jail yeah, in, as part it. of this story. She you just knows we brought her the her. tusk. Well, we, I don't think she would be. L- little did you know she's our biggest fan and, <laughs> and our most active Facebook user. I don't think that she would be open to, to my casual drug use. Yeah, yeah. She'd be disappointed by that. Yeah, I think that would ruin her. She would just break the tusk in half. Fuck this tusk and his weed. <laughs> he was smoking the reefer. Jackson's kind of hoping she leaves him the tusk in her will, but apparently there's a lot of other family members angling for it. Now How many years ago it. was this? She's 102 now. Holy shit, man. She's keeping on trucking along, and she recommended to us a new journey for us. She reads National Geographic all the time. Yeah. And she read about Siberian mammoth tusks. And so she concocted this fucking plan for me and Jackson to go. And originally, when we first heard the idea, like, Russian mammoth tusk adventure, we were like, yeah, this sounds sick. This sounds really fun. Then we realized her plan was for us to go rent a cabin on a river in the winter, wade out the thaw, and then search the ice pack for tusks that have been, like, 
like, overlooked by over- <laughs> archaeologists and shit. Because she read some article about like how the thaw came and like tusks yeah. were like in the yeah. ice pack or something. She's like, nah, man, you just go there and there's mad tusks everywhere. It's like a fucking xylophone when you walk well, outside. <laughs> they were selling them in an Inuit village. I figured there's maybe some Siberian village where they're selling tusks or something that yeah. they found, and we yeah. just go buy one. That's so no, crazy. no, no. She, this was like a three month journey of vague possibility i just love how old school she is like i feel like if it was up to her she would just have a pair of gorilla hand gloves like she just she's like when you're a hundred years old you have no concept of like endangered species you're like man we're out here killing all these fucking buffaloes we don't give a fuck yeah you know what i mean no they didn't care and and i'm a vegetarian so this actually in some moral way was like okay on a very strict moral level should i really be going to retrieve this like endangered animal slaughtered appendage for this woman and then i was like it's already off the animal's head this woman's a hundred years old she comes from a time where the idea of being vegetarian for moral reasons you you just smack the kid that didn't even make sense you You just put a put a piece of beef stew in his mouth and say eat this fucking goat and and like it shut the fuck up george yeah so you know i figured the the idea of making this woman happy i'm a pragmatic vegetarian you know i don't want to force my worldview on other people especially people who grew up in a different time you know getting into a moral high ground argument with them is not something i'm interested in so uh, you know we did it anyway and maybe in the vegetarian animal rights community that makes me a bad man but i stick by the choice yeah so PETA I'm not a PETA fan PETA you could eat a dick PETA eat a dick so that's a wax wax rhyme right is it skeet on it PETA chip oh yeah eat a eat a something I you guess piece of shit eat a p- eat yeah I don't remember I know how it goes but I don't like no I don't like looking like I pay attention to it, other people's music enough to remember it but he goes eat a dick or at least eat, eat a, a PETA, PETA chip, chip before I skeet on, on it, it you, you piece, piece of, of shit. shit so he doesn't I, say eat I, a dick f- I fully admit that I geek out on Wax's bars and Dumbfounded's bars and your bars yeah and Wax is a really great rapper man he has this one line that he recently had on a song or in the like cypher? a video I don't know. It wasn't in the Cypher oh, video. Because I really like his line in the Cypher where he's like, there's a tribe in so-and-so that's yeah. happier than everybody else. I was like, whoa, he just barred up. He has one line that blew my mind recently that I was just like, I felt like an inferior rapper because I don't even know how he thought of it. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, I'm way above all these fools in this musical genre. Plus, I just blew on some ganja and flew on Lufthansa. And while I was there, I fucked the stewardess, Tanya. So when it comes to being high, I'm a quadruple entendre. Woo, that's hard. That's crazy because it's like fucking quadruple entendre. And then, so he has that one multibar yeah. and then fits four things. So it's a five rhyme, multi-syllable rhyme. Yeah. Where all of those things relate to being high and then are tied together by quadruple. Like to me, that's some fucking like. Yeah, that's very impressive. That's really fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're about to keister his D. I would keister Wax's <laughs> Wax's rhyme D. You know the last person if, that, if I the last some person, of his skills. The last uh, project that I heard that made me feel like a super inferior rapper was Chance's project. Mm, yeah. Chance the Rapper's album made me scared to rap for a f- couple months. As I was listening to it, I'm going, why do I even rap anymore? Like, these kids are amazing now. His, so. his I mean, Acid Raps is so crazy. I love that album. It's so good. Yeah. It, and it's so musical too it's very musical and and it's also so it's just so creative and carefree like you can't pick up on the patterns like there doesn't see it seems like a structureless album when yeah. it's but you know what i mean the structure is there like, like he wrote in just the zone yeah it's crazy but anyways yeah uh, what's up with you writing new stuff I, I hear that you're like on your way back to the studio perhaps yeah i'm gonna start my sessions in two weeks two weeks from tomorrow and i've been working really hard to build up a lot of material and um 
all the people who have worked on my past projects are going to be involved in this one. Max, Aaron Carmack, who did my song, Hey Asshole, and um, Headphones on my first album, and he's a mad decent guy. Mad decent, the label, or just... The label. I mean, he's also a mad decent individual, but yeah, yeah, he's really gotten some attention for his production work lately, which is... Awesome. He goes under the name Mr. Carmack. Oh, yeah. I know I know who that is. Oh, cool. I mean, I've heard of him. I don't know him. Yeah, yeah. He's doing great. And he's an old San Francisco friend of mine. So he's going to be involved. And my buddy Miles, who goes by Mikos, who's an old collaborator. And um, so Koosh, Cootie, my drummer, Pat, my guitarist. And then it's going to be overseen by Breezy Lovejoy, who now goes by Anderson Pack, who's a extended family member of all of us. And I'm really excited for that because he's just one of my favorite people doing it right now. So I can't wait to see how it kind of evolves, but I have like 25 tracks right now and hopefully I'll have like five more before we go in there and just, we'll take the best material and hope that people like it. Hope it stands up to what we've done in the past and I have a good feeling about it. Yeah. 25 tracks is a lot. It takes me fucking four years to write 13. I don't know if they're all good. I just am trying to not judge my material too much of whether it's the shit and just make sure that I get stuff written and I figure I'll judge later whether it's up to a standard I want to release. But I do believe that sometimes you strike gold when you're not pushing so hard. And if you can like allow yourself to be a little bit less stressed out about the quality of it has to be amazing. then sometimes you get that carefree stuff because you're just having fun with it in your writing process. So I'm trying to approach the album that way a little bit more. So it's like you write all this stuff on the road, gather it up, and then just lock yourself in a studio for two weeks or something? I started writing it while we were on the Hug a Hater tour. I actually started doing sessions with Breezy in September where we did these musical jams with like two instrumentalists in each one, and we'd record it. And Nils, who's my engineer and tour manager, was tracking all the sessions. By the way, shout out to Nils, super instrumental in everything I do, and want to thank him very much for everything that he's done for me. So shout out to Nils. Um, But he'll track the sessions then we'll go back through all these. It's kind of the way that I've read the roots do it. You have these loose jams and then you pluck ideas from them and then I'll loop those ideas and use them as the basis for writing different things. And that'll become a template for a song. And while we were on the road, I was doing that just to make sure that I didn't lose two months of time to being on the road and not get anything out of it. So, and then when the shit in London happened, I stepped back for a little while and kind of reevaluated made sure that I felt like it was a responsible thing to do to continue forward. And once I felt like that was what I wanted to do, I just started writing again. Now we've been doing a few more jam sessions with Breezy, AKA AP. And I've just been trying to stack up material that I like, try and write funny stuff, serious stuff, concept driven stuff, not so concept driven stuff, and just get a lot of shit. And then when we get into the studio, I'll have this big, trove of material to draw on as the basis for the work but i want to make sure that we stay really loose while we're in there and just if a better idea comes along and it's two days before the session ends i don't want to lock myself into what we've already done you know i just i want it to be the best possible stuff are you gonna have breezy orchestrating things while holding a narwhal tusk yeah he'll probably be keistering the the tusk that'll be great He's just a, a really talented multitasker. He could probably spin around on it while he's <laughs> sing, getting full vibrato. He should just use it as a drumstick and keep it simple. Yeah, that that'd would be, be cool. That'd be smarter. Well, I look forward to hearing the new music, George. I'm happy that we got to fucking catch up. This is great, man. Get some great stories. Fucking very entertaining person. I can How are see. you? You're good? I'm cool. 
Same shit, different day. Same uh, shit. Yeah, for sure. It ain't about me, bro. Uh, well, no. thank you for having me. <laughs> no, absolutely. I'm glad that you came in on last minute because I had a, the story behind this. You are our 52nd episode. You are officially the year anniversary guest. That's uh, an honor, man. Which is oh. crazy. And uh, I'm excited to kind of bring it full circle because you were – I don't know if you know, but like uh, – during the whole Knox City thing when we were doing the Knox City Live shit, like, you were one of the guests that I was, like, very excited to have on because at the time you had just popped off and I was going, like, man, we got to get this kid on. He's going to be something. And then I fucking randomly saw you at a battle and I just went up and I said, yeah, hey, man, my name's Lee and I work with uh, this company, Knox City. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know you guys. And I was like, cool, we've been trying to contact you and we don't know how to get a hold of you, so – you should come in. And then, you know, the rest is history. A whirlwind romance. And, and <laughs> it's uh, been great, man. Yeah. We have 16 orphan children together. And no, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's been. Say. And so it's cool to like have my year anniversary be with an old buddy that helped uh, along that process. So thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, most definitely, man. Uh, where can the people find you online? Everything is slash G Watsky, my Facebook, my Twitter, my YouTube accounts, and all those are places you can hit me up. I uh, try to be active on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, if you guys have questions or anything, I'd be happy to respond to them there. And I don't always get back, but I do try. And I just want to say to anyone who's listening, if you're my fan or not, like I'm going to keep doing this for a long time. And, uh, I've had some radio silence, but that's because I wanted to reflect on the shit that happened in London. And I wanted to make sure that I was going forward in a way that I felt like had integrity. And so I'm going to just keep going forward. And I hope that if you decide to stick around that I make you proud in the future and don't do a bunch of boneheaded dumb fuck things. So that is what it is. Thanks for listening. There you have it, man. You'll always bounce back. You're a good dude. I fucking appreciate it. But my name is Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition. You can follow me on Twitter at It's Intuition. You can follow my man behind the boards, Ben Shim, making the shit sound buttery at I Am Database, based with two S's. You can follow us as a unit at That's Kinda Neat. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash kinda neat, where you should like that shit. YouTube.com slash that's kinda neat, where we're going to see Mr. Watsky perform Send in the Sun. Send in the Sun. I was going to say it has the word sun in it, and I can't remember the proper wording. So we're going to see Watsky perform Send in the Sun, which is one of only three songs left without a visual treatment so i'm excited that he had some left over for us Hell yeah download that podcast app and uh search for kind of neat and subscribe leave a comment five star rating all that this social media rant is getting too long anyhow george thank you for coming in that was our conversation and it was kind of neat cool